you for the influence that you've had over me in my life. And I'm also thankful uh, to the Bible faculty for giving me this opportunity uh, to teach and, and to preach. I've done it a few times before, but not in a crowd uh, this big. And with, like you had said, my peers and those who have influenced me and taught me so much. Um, I wish I could be speaking to you in my native accent. Uh, My father's Australian, and I missed out. I guess it skipped me or something. So you'll have to listen in uh, to the content, not just the way I speak. Uh, Thank you for coming for those who are attending um, with the Monday at Masters. Uh, It puts a little bit more pressure on me um, to give you something that a normal speaker would be very good at. Um, I'm both excited and nervous for this. The last time I had been up in a crowd this big, I think it was eight years old, and I ended up passing out. So <laughs> if I do, just wait for me to get back up, and I'll keep going. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, I wanted to preach this sermon to you because I both want to encourage and to warn you. I want to encourage you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is sufficient, that in him we have the fullness of life. But I also want to warn you that to move on from the gospel is to make Christ die for nothing and that it is actually easy to do. And what we will see by example is that both Peter and the Galatians fell into that same thinking. In this text today that we look at, I trust that you will see its relevance in your life. I don't think it will be very funny. Um, I won't have pithy sayings or great stories to tell. But I think Paul, through the story of Galatians, does a great job at doing that himself. And so I ask that you buckle up as we take a journey through his argument that he makes against earning your way to God and for living a life of faith in Christ. So with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I I come to you on behalf of this university I ask that you give me clarity of speech, that the words that I say are from your word, and that what is true is received into the hearts of these people, and what is not will be rejected. I ask that you give me confidence in your word, and that you will affect the hearts of these people with your spirit through the preaching and hearing of your word, that it is Through faith in your son, that we have both salvation and security and assurance. And that the life we live, as Paul says, that we live in faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. In your holy name, amen. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Galatians. Uh, I have to ask, what is the basic tenet of Christianity? What is Christianity 101? This very question is answered by Paul because the Galatians, his congregation that he had seen and preached to many times before and that he dearly loved, had forgotten the answer to that question. And to forget the answer to that question, well, as he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, that to desert Christ by the grace of Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ, and turn to a different gospel is to make Christ die for nothing. But he writes this not to a group of unbelievers, but to his own flock. 
to sons and daughters of God. And so he, with relentless indignation, has to, with the full force of the divine message and his divine authority from Christ, correct this wrong thinking that your salvation shall be earned by what you do. And the way you live has to reflect that it is by faith in Christ. From the very beginning, there's no kind introduction. There's no, hey, you guys are doing great in this way. I'm so thankful for you. Within six verses, he right away tells them, I am amazed that you have left this basic tenet of Christianity. He defends that what he's heard is not from man. And what we see in chapter 3, he calls him foolish twice. Some translations render this idiots. That they're idiots for changing their way of thinking. They were running well. They had started right. And now they're running in vain. And then he finishes it with chapter 6 by saying, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. It's a hard book to read because it's so confronting. It's confronting because we're capable of falling into the same error. And so that's what I want to warn you guys against, as Paul warned his Galatians against the same thing. That you cannot get it wrong. To get it wrong steals assurance for those who are saved, and it takes away the glory that God receives from his work, and it influences others to also be led astray. But before Paul can get into the content of the basic tenet of Christianity, how is it that man is justified before God, he has to defend himself and his authority. Not because he's narcissistic or power tripping and wants to really assert himself, but because unless your authority is divine, then your message can't be divine. Or that in order for your message to be divine, the sender has to also be sent divinely. And in the context here, the false teachers have broke the trust that the Galatians had with Paul. And so he asserts it in three simple ways. He gives them more than they asked for, and he walks them through his journey of conversion and consultation and commission. And just to quickly run through this in uh, verse uh, 16, we see that Paul was called directly by Christ in chapter 1, verse 16, that God revealed his son so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Sorry, I skipped a verse. Uh, the one before, 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace. This is a story you guys are all familiar with. In Acts, Paul's on the road to Damascus to persecute the believers, an enemy of God, an enemy of the saints. And what does he do? Well, what does God do, rather? He divinely intervenes in his life, visibly, audibly, and in Paul's heart. And Jesus Christ presses him with the question of why are you persecuting me? And Paul is instantly, his heart melts and he changes. He goes, I get it. It's Christ. That he really is who he said he was. And he believes. So his calling was from Christ. But his consultation was also by, with Christ. Not from man. And that's what we see in verses 16, what I just read. That his son was revealed to him so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. And he didn't immediately consult with anybody. He actually didn't consult with anybody for three years. That the gospel he had received from Christ, he was educated also by Christ for the next three years. But then finally, his commission was also from Christ. And he needs the Galatians to understand this, that every aspect of my life 
and my ministry has been directly from Christ. This is not man's gospel, okay? It is a, a message that you need to understand you cannot let go of what you first believed. And so his commission is in verse one where he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent for man nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. And so he knows that this is a bold claim to make. And so he wants to also walk through the affirmation he received from the apostles. And this is where we get to chapter two. That after 14 years, he finally goes up to the Jerusalem council to meet with a number of the apostles. And it is here that he wants to make sure, hey, I, hadn't, I, wanted, I want you to verify that I had not run in vain, nor that I am running in vain now. That my ministry was misguided or incorrect. And so he says to them in verses 6 that they contributed nothing to him. But on the contrary, he says, they had seen that I was entrusted with the gospel, verse 7. And that in verse 9, they recognized the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John. And they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So he was embraced as a brother. So the Galatians now have no reason to not have their trust in what Paul had said. He reestablished it. His defense is set. And this is where he transitions. He transitions to the main point. Well, sorry, I have two, but to the first main point. But he does it creatively. He does it through a story. And I think we all like stories. That's part of what makes a sermon good, is a good illustration or a story that helps us relate to what's being said. And Paul does that with a very bold story one in which he confronts one of the 12. I found it so interesting in reading this, especially for, for the first time, that Paul found himself so bold as to confront Peter, one of the 12, even though he was just a mere man who had once persecuted the Christian faith. But it doesn't really matter, because if you're sent by God and your message is divine, and another man corrupts that, by speech or by deed, then you need to be corrected. And so he does that. But at the heart of the story, he gets to the Galatian heresy. But before we get there, I'd like to just quickly walk through what he says to Peter and why he's confronted. Looking at 2.11, he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. It's bold that he says this, and that he confronts Peter, and he does it in front of everybody, as we see in uh, verses uh, 14, that he says it in the presence of all. But he's, Peter stands condemned, and we've got to ask, why is it? Why is it that one of the twelve can stand condemned? I mean, we talk about Peter and his denial of Christ three times, and how he had constantly rebuked Christ, but this is all before his conversion, or the... Uh, Pentecost. But after that, it's, things are different, right? He wouldn't have fallen into the same kind of error. But here we see that Peter confronts him and says, you stand condemned, that you got it wrong. What did he get wrong? What we see is he got wrong the very tenet of Christianity, that his actions betrayed the message that he had proclaimed and ministered for so many years. In verse 12, it says, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, some Jewish people, that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. And this was okay because the barrier between Jew and Gentile had been broken and fellowship was possible. 
by their union of Christ, there was no more barrier. And so what God had originally called unclean was no longer unclean. But rather they are one. So Peter knows this and he continually eats with the Gentiles. But some Judaizers, Jewish Christians, who had submitted themselves under the law of Moses, knew that that was an unclean thing, and Peter was influenced by that. So that when they had come to see Peter, Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles, saying, hey, I can't associate with you anymore because, without saying it, but by his, work, by his deed, I have to submit myself once again under the works of the law. That we aren't really united, that I'm kind of a step up, and unless you do what I do, we can't have fellowship. And so when Peter does this, he not only leads himself astray, but with his hypocrisy, as we see in verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him, and even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, falls into the same thing. And so Peter, Paul has to confront it. This isn't okay. What does he say? In verse 14, he said to Cephas, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel them to live like the Jews? You're creating a double standard. This isn't what we were unified with. What we see later in verses at the end of uh, chapter 3 is that there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Peter knew that. But his actions betrayed the gospel. So Peter confronts it. And this is where we get to the first point that I want to make. And this is how is the Christian life started? It kind of seems really basic. Why is it that Paul couldn't just say, hey, you know that we're united in Christ? No, he goes back even further to the Christianity 101. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. I mean, thank you, Paul. You said this three times. I think he made himself clear. It's not by works of the law, and it's by faith in Christ. But each time he repeats himself, it's just a little different. And he wants to make it clear that you can't mix the two. That it's either faith in Christ or works of the law. You can't do both. And I'll show you why that is. But first, to just briefly explain, he says that a man is not justified by works of the law. This is an individual instance that no man, by what he does, can be right before God. What is justified? Simply, it's to be declared righteous before God. So you will not be declared righteous by what you do. For them in this context, it's following the Mosaic Law. For humanity, that's been our age-old question. How can we be right before God? This was Martin Luther's greatest question that led to the Reformation. Is what I do really going to appease God? It's what the Roman Catholics taught, that yes, you need grace, but also you have to work. And they got it wrong, and, and this is why Galatians meant so much to, and Romans meant so much to, to Martin Luther, because he realized that it's all in Christ, or it's not at all. And so the individual, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And then, Peter, Paul talks about his experience with Peter, that we know that even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that way we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
And then he reiterates, sorry, one more time, that universally, this is a true statement. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And I want to spend just a, a few moments talking about maybe what that looks like. We're here at a Christian school. We're taught regularly what the gospel is. We know it. We understand it. That it's not by the works of the law. But I want to further give weight to that by what Peter said, Paul says. Sorry, I'm going to probably confuse that a lot. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 10, where he says, For as many as are, the, are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He wants to lay down the very burden that it is to be under the law. That to try and be justified by God is a hard task on your own. That on your own, you have to go and perform every deed of the law. And we know that for them, it's the Ten Commandments and how that gets expounded of love the Lord your God and do not commit adultery, obey your parents, which is something we always disobey as kids. I know I did. Um, but he gives them this list. You know them. Ten Commandments. We learned it in Sunday school. God demands of us that we obey 100% all the time, all of it. This isn't good news. This is, you want to earn your way to God? Do this perfectly. 100%. Not just in quantity, but in quality. That you have to, as summarized by Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And not only that, but you got to do that with your neighbor too. you got to love him as yourself. Have you been doing that lately? For those who profess their trust in Christ, you've seen that in your life before. You can't perfectly obey. And James 2.10 makes it clear. If you fail in one area of the, law, of the law, you're guilty of all of it. We stand condemned. And to fall guilty is to experience the wrath of God. So Peter makes it clear. No flesh will be justified. Why? Because to be under the curse of the law, or to be under the law is a curse. Because it's impossible, it's, it's an impossible demand that we can fulfill. Rather, the law was there to show us our sin, to make it known, to lead us then to what we really need, which is somebody who can do that for us. So you're left in despair. Who's going to save you? If you're a believer, you should find relief that this burden is no longer yours. You don't have to carry it. But rather, look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And he did that in order that Jesus Christ, that in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We are, there's two ways to be justified. Theoretically, anyway. Paul makes it clear that it's really only one. Either we perfectly obey the law of God and earn our way. As was made clear, that's not possible. The other way is to rely, perfect, to, to rely on the perfect obedience of Christ who has done that in your stead. That he has done 
what we couldn't do, that the burden that we had to bear to fulfill the demand of the law was done on our behalf. This is the beauty of union with Christ and the substitutionary work, that every time we would disobey, Christ obeyed, that in his life, he wasn't lazy, he never lusted, his thoughts were always pure, there was a lot of do-nots that he did, and there was a lot of do's that he did do. Yeah. <laughs> he was always edifying. He was always giving. He was always helpful. His words were like honey. And he never deserved the curse of the law because he had earned it. His righteousness was earned. But he does something for us. This is what he had to do to redeem us. It's the gospel. We know this, that Christ was sent on earth to save us because we couldn't fulfill what was demanded of us, but Christ could, and so he did. He perfectly obeyed. He loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and he loved his neighbor, so much so that he was willing to die on the cross to bear the wrath reserved for us because of what we could not do. Is that not encouraging to know? I mean, for those of you who believe, this is something you know, but continue to think about that. It's just so relieving that the substitution that Christ has given us, we now have what he has. He has given us security and assurance and forgiveness. We have fellowship. We have a regenerate spirit. We're new. We couldn't do this before. We couldn't fulfill the demands of the law. But Christ has redeemed us so that we could live unto him. And so that's how it works. And Paul makes, the, uh, makes it clear that our faith in Christ is what justifies us. That's what makes us righteous because we are putting our faith in somebody. It's not just the faith itself, but the content of which we are believing in, that Jesus Christ has come before us and done what we could not do and substitute himself and bore the wrath. And now we are given the righteousness of Christ if we put our faith in him. This is the gospel. This is basic Christianity. You cannot have fellowship with one another unless you believe this. And so Paul then doesn't leave it just there. He wants to make it clear. Well, I I just want to say this too. In 2 Corinthians 5, just so I'm not saying this on my own, it makes it clear that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. It's a beautiful verse that summarizes so perfectly this idea of our union and substitution of what we had done, how that condemned us, and how Christ for us loved us so much that he would take that upon himself, the wrath reserved, and give us his righteousness. So Paul asserts this and demands a decision. Are you going to rely on your works? Are you going to have faith in Christ? We know that righteousness is attained by faith in Christ. Is this your experience? It was Peter's. It was Paul's. And he makes it clear that it was even the Galatians, that they had started well, that they're brothers, that they are in Christ. That the reality of this, as we see in chapter 2, verses 19 
once placing your faith in Christ, you have died to the law. Paul had died to the law. You, Christian, have died to the law so that you might live to God. And this is the key. You being crucified with Christ, it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And Paul makes it clear that the life he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in Christ. And so you don't see yourself, as Pastor John MacArthur has said before, that you don't see yourself in relationship to the law once you're in Christ. You see yourself in relationship to Christ. But it can't end there. It has to keep going. That the gospel doesn't just stop once you've died to the law. Think of Romans 6 with what Paul said. Uh, with, yeah, Paul wrote that. He wrote Romans. With what he says. He says it is clear that he asked the question, if grace abounds, can you continue to sin? God forbid. God forbid that you think that you have a license now to just do whatever you want because your sin's been covered and grace abounds. Like grace is just some mere tincture that you pour over. It's not. Grace is Jesus Christ. And to deny that and to think you have a license to do what you want is to discredit and, and trample on the sacrifice of Christ. So, Paul has to continue though. It'd be nice if we could just say, hey, okay, you know the basic tenet of Christianity, that's point one, that we are justified not by what we do, but by our faith in Christ. And now we just go on living, living a life in Christ. That's true. That's our battle cry. But Paul can't end there, and so neither can I. Because our still, still our tendency is to fall back to this thinking that we still earn something with God, that even once we have believed and we have a new spirit within us, that we can move on to something better like our own flesh. That it's not just by Christ and his spirit that he gives us and the means of those grace, graces that he provides. It is rather now God initiated, he gave us the opportunity to, he's helping me, but I got to add something to that too because I'm just not seeing it work in my life. We don't experience perfection. We're given the spirit and then we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But, as Paul makes it clear in Philippians 2, that it is with fear and trembling you work out salvation, but it is God who works in you both to will and to do. That it is not just salvation is not just, sorry, what the basic tenet of Christianity, salvation, is also what drives sanctification. It doesn't change. It doesn't go from, oh, I've been secured. My faith is great. I've got that. So now I'm just going to go and add my own works to what Christ has done because it's getting hard and I don't see myself changing as much as I'd like. And No. And what we see in chapter 3 is Paul addresses that faulty thinking because the Galatians have also fallen into that. That they have turned to a different gospel. And this different gospel, like I've said before, you can do it. The Galatians did it. Peter did it. So look at verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Bewitching has the idea of being charmed. It's almost as if Satan here is influencing them to turn from something they once had and now to something else as a means of righteousness. But he repeats himself in a different way that you saw Christ before your very own eyes. You saw him publicly portrayed as crucified. Not that they literally saw it, but that it was preached to them so well and so vividly that it's as if they were there themselves. You saw it. And so he asked them three rhetorical questions to reestablish that, hey, you've fallen off the track. You're no longer in line with what you originally believed, and you need to get back on track. And that's the second point I want to make, which is how do we progress in the Christian life? It's, again, through faith. Through faith in Christ, powered by the Spirit. So his three rhetorical questions he asks to get you to think about that. In verse 2, he says, this, this only I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's appealing to their experience. You know this is true. You received it by faith, not by works of the law. So what are you doing? Verse 3, are you so foolish Having been begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Remember this verse whenever you find yourself falling into the temptation. That your flesh is what continues you and progresses you. It's wrong. What is it then that perfects us? If it's not our flesh, it's got to be something. It's the Spirit. And it's the spirit in faith. What we see again, it's going back to what Paul said in verse 20. That I've been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith in Christ. This is present tense. It's not just a one, once for all, I'm done. I got, I got nothing else to do. Let go, let God. Nor is it that I try and earn something from God. It's all been earned at the cross. There's nothing more to add. And so you continue by the spirit. That your position is not changing But your day-to-day experience needs to be conformed, conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we understand sanctification to be in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, 3. That Paul says, it is beholding the glory of of Christ that you are conformed to his image. That you move from one glory to the next. And you have to do this in faith. So are you so foolish having been begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me appeal again once... Once again, to another experience you had. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? A glimmer of hope. Maybe it's not all lost. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by works or does he do it by faith? We go back to that basic question. Is this by faith or is it by works? And so I I don't want to end it there because this is all doctrinal. This is how it works that we were saved by faith in Christ we're sanctified by our faith in Christ nothing changes there's not this transition Paul makes it clear Christ secures it it's like I've heard this example a few times that awful feeling 
when you go to the store as a kid and you buy a toy, some kind of electronic toy, and that frustrating feeling you get when you open the box, excited, and you find out there are no batteries in the box. I mean, why did our parents not think that through? It's usually on the label. And so now we have to wait what feels like a lifetime, which is probably like 20 minutes to drive to the store and get some or find some around the house, but it's frustrating that we're given the toy, we want batteries included. Paul makes that point. Your salvation is secure. Hey, guess what? The batteries are included. That what started you is going to keep you going. You don't have to then try and rely on yourself to conform yourself to the image of Christ. It's the Spirit's work in you. And this is done by faith. Your experience is that. The Galatians experience is that. And so I ask again, have you found yourself trying to work towards something? Favor or merit with God? You're tired of your sin and seeing that you fail over and over again. Yes, there's been a change, but I mean, it's not fast enough. Maybe, maybe the Spirit's not enough. I got to do better. I got to pick myself up by my bootstraps and just try harder. I lived under that burden. It was uh, at 18 years old that I really came to this crossroads of really how I, I've got no assurance. I keep falling into bouts of laziness and lust, and I just don't know where to go from here. I'm discouraged. Has Christ really redeemed me? Is this really true? It was on the porch of Pastor Harry's house. And he was faithful to help me through that. And it took a while, but I started to realize that you don't progress past the gospel. You go back every time. And you first present, no, I have been redeemed from this. That, yes, my present reality is I'm a sinner, but I know that when I first proclaimed Christ and had faith in him, that he saved me from the present, the past, and the future sins. And that's what I hold on to. He will hold me fast. He is my cornerstone. He is my rock. It's not me. And so this is what drives us, knowing that the joy that overflows is how we then move on and progress, that it was faith in Christ that started us, and it's what faith in Christ that what continues us. We need to be conformed to his image, and you don't do that by your own efforts. Paul understands this, and he sees that the Galatians, some beloved children of God, have fallen into that trap, and we as people today fall into that trap. So my encouragement, as I said before, is that you see that Christ is sufficient. And my warning is that you don't fall into this thinking, this error of I will earn something or I will work for something. Rather, it is by faith in Christ and that progresses you. And the new spirit that we have or the spirit that we have, the regenerate heart, it now enables us. It's kind of uh, contradictory it seems that the spirit produces these good works in us. That it's not in our own flesh that we do it, but it's by faith. And I, in conclusion, I want to look at that. Look at Galatians 5. We can't leave without seeing this. Galatians 
Paul helps them practically understand that, look, this is, not, this is how you don't do it, by your own works. This is how you do do it, by faith in Christ, by trusting, by walking in the Spirit. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. This is a promise that by walking in the Spirit, desires of flesh... Not that they're obsolete or that you no longer commit it or that you ever do anything bad again, but that by walking in the Spirit, it's a promise that you will stop action by action carrying out the desires of the flesh. They're in contrast with one another. That's what Paul says. And again in verse 25, that if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's how we change. It's by the Spirit. You need to appeal to him to help you to conform to the image of Christ. And he does, not just by prayer, but primarily, as we see in Colossians 2, 6, by the word of God. That it's almost synonymous that the spirit and the word are intermingled. They're used together. And so we must go to the scriptures. That's how we conform to the image of Christ. By appealing to Christ on, by appealing to Christ and what he has done, by recognizing and seeing him and his beauty and then praying and, and appealing to the Lord to conform us to that image and the fruit of that is then what we do. On our own, we can't do it. We need the help of the Spirit. We don't just start by faith in Christ. We progress through the Christian life by the very same thing. So, I finish with, well, again, with what Martin Luther makes clear. You need to utilize the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It is in faith, through the hearing and reading of His Word, that you are sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, that your flesh has been once for all crucified with Christ. Not that you never sin again, but that you're no longer a slave to the power of sin and its condemnation. That you're no longer condemned. It is dead. So now be led by the Spirit of Christ and walk in him. Do this in faith, faith, knowing that the salvation that you have received is secure and there's nothing left for you to earn. Simply have faith in Christ alone, by faith alone, and it is all by grace alone. So that the fruit of this becomes holiness and a life lived for Christ. And that we can also agree with Paul as he says that the life that I now live, I live by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness your faithfulness to hold us fast, that even in our failures, you forgive us. And that is on the basis of what your son has done. And so I just ask that the takeaway of this being that the gospel is still beautiful, if ever more today than it was when I and others have first believed. And that our battle cry be, the life we now live, we live by faith in Christ. You are glorious. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our obedience. 
but we need you. We are desperate for you to help us to persevere, to love you, and to love others. I look forward to the day of being in eternity with you and and in the fellowship and to have that with those here who have also believed. And I ask that for those who haven't, you convict their hearts. That this plant a seed, that they don't do anything to be made right with you, but is purely by the grace of God through faith in your son. You're an amazing God. So let us praise you one last time in song.